The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. From The Square Ball, me, Dan, and Michael's here as well. And from The Athletic is Phil Hay. If you're not yet subscribed, you can read all the articles on Leeds and everything else on the site. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Pound a month for six months is the offer at the minute at that URL. Give me one good reason to sign up, Phil. Oh, we've had all the post Bielsa um, articles, also a lot on Jesse Marsh uh, since his first game at the weekend, um, and a close look this week into how well Bamford is likely to fit into his team and how well the attacking structure is likely to work for him, given that he does look like he is finally back. And we will touch on some of those themes across the show today. Jesse's first week, but if you want to get involved with The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, pound a month, six months. So we'll do this in three bits. First bit, let's look back on what's happened so far. The Leicester game, much better, but still ultimately lost. Which is going to be the problem going forward if the performances don't lead to results. It is at that stage of the season now. And and Marsh clearly knew that when he came in, that it wasn't going to be a case of him having endless amounts of time to bed in and, and to change things. He did say at his first press conference, it is 12 games rather than three or four. You know, So it doesn't necessarily need to be massive impact immediately but it does need to be a big impact pretty quickly and over a sustained period what I think the upside of Leicester was that we were able to see in the game that he's clearly somebody who can teach ideas fairly quickly it was different and there was a lot about the team um, that changed there were things about the lineup which were very similar to the lineups that Bielsa had been using if we're talking about personnel but the formation was different the system of pressing was different the structure of the team was very unlike Bielsa's side in as much as Marsh went with the, the 4-2-2-2 that they spoke about um, him using a lot at Salzburg and, and and a formation he's very familiar with. And it, and it was a break from the 4-1-4-1 that we're used to uh, under Bielsa. I, I thought they were very unlucky at Leicester. I thought they had enough of the game to win it. I thought they had enough of the chances to win it as well. Schmeichel, Kasper Schmeichel had a very good game in goal, which was ultimately the difference, as was in the end a, a fairly tame and, and easy goal from Harvey Barnes one two in the box with um, Ian Acho and and that was that. So I think reasonable grounds for um, for Marsh to feel satisfied with that and and to feel like progress had been made. But it is another defeat and that is five on on the bounce and they are very much in the zone now where they they have got to got to win games. It's do or die now, isn't it? And we will look ahead to Villa and Norwich in the third part of the show. What do you think we can take then from that Leicester game? Because we know we need points on the board. We didn't get any. So what is the positive out of that? Is it the better performance, the better shape, um, not conceding as much ground, space, chances, whatever? Melier had a quiet day. The shape in the organisation was a definite plus point and Melier was far more quiet than than Schmeichel who, there were, I would have said three or four really good clear chances that Leeds could or should have, have stuck away and, and when we were doing the analysis of the, the attacking play, it did seem to me that Bamford would fit in pretty well to that. They, they were playing with less width, or at least they were set up with less width um, in the the four two 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 because you basically have inverted wingers in behind the front two, and it was very fluid with the the four players up top. It wasn't as if it stuck strictly with two players in attack and, and two players in behind. Harrison and Rafinha were nominally the wingers, but it did rotate a lot. And when Leicester were on the ball. It almost changed into a four-two-four, which was a, a kind of an attacking line of four, which was there to to keep Leicester deep and to tempt Leicester to go long, and and to press in a totally different way. There the were pressing triggers, which seemed to be the ball being played to Leicester's fullback at uh, fullbacks. At which point, Leeds would press them on mass and and would would hunt in packs and to try and take the ball in that way, and and it worked for them a few times. I think had 
had we gone to Leicester and seen a performance that was more defensive and, and tighter without seeing any attacking threat, had a, a complete change of system and, and ideas led to Leeds being toothless, then you'd have come away feeling quite concerned because you'd, you'd have thought that this is going to take a fair amount of time to settle in if it's not working at both ends of the pitch. But I think because it felt as if they could and should have won that game, it, it, it gave you more optimism that, that Marsh can get a grip at this. Given the change in style, were you surprised by the lineup? Because it seemed still like a Bielsa team, on paper at least, in terms of ailing a centre-back, Dallas at fullback, etc. And also Koch in the centre of midfield. You know, it, it was the what people would sometimes say, square pegs in round holes or, or the other way round. It made a difference that Diego Llorente wasn't available at centre-back, although clearly Koch could have dropped back into that position. There was also the issue that Adam Forshaw hadn't trained um, right the way through the week because that was probably the biggest surprise with the team sheet, I think, aside from Bamford being on the bench, although we all kind of wondered if that might happen. Forshaw out, out the team seemed to be the you know the best and most energetic midfielder missing from the lineup, but clearly Marsh didn't want to risk him in the way that he didn't want to risk Bamford ultimately either. So there were slight surprises with the team. Dallas at, at right back again. You know, it's the, the debate over over where, whether he's best there, whether whether they could do something else. Something tells me that as players come back or as players are, are more available. So, for example, Forshaw for for Villa um, at Ellen Road the team will probably start to take a clearer look and, and will perhaps start to look a, a little bit more balanced. It was probably as much as anything circumstances on Saturday and the personnel who were available that, that led to that lineup. But I think tactically and in terms of the, the approach to the game and, and the system that Marsh tried to employ, you did see the differences and you did get the sense that the players had picked up on it on some of it pretty quickly. What's going on with Bamford? Because it felt like he was weeks away and now all of a sudden he's back on the bench. Admittedly, he wasn't deemed fit enough to come on but is it is it a case now that we're just we have a lower bar for fitness no i don't think it's purely that i think the the misunderstanding this week has probably been that bamford was back on the pitch last thursday when we went up to the open training session and that was before uh, marsh's first press conference at thorpe arch he has been working and he has been he has been progressing and he has been getting slightly closer but towards the end it was quite hard to to get out of bielsa the exact time frame for it and the exact time scale for for what was going on I think people looked at that on Thursday and thought, well, Bielsa's gone and suddenly Bamford's available. But actually, as it turned out, they weren't really willing to give him more than 10 minutes down at Leicester because they weren't that confident in his fitness. And even that Thursday um, training session, he he actually missed quite a large part of it. He went off to do other stuff on his own. Again, because he is still going through this process of of recovering from the, the muscle that he tore in his, in his foot. So... He's not going to start against Villa. I don't know if he'll even be ready to start against Norwich. I, I would suspect not, but there will be minutes available for him. For what it's worth, I, I get the sense that had Bielsa still been here, Bamford wouldn't have been far away either. And maybe Bielsa was actually just protecting Bamford from too much speculation about when he's coming back, You know, not wanting to put too much pressure on his, on his fitness at that point. I think towards the end as well, he did seem to get tired of talking about injuries, which I can understand because it had been the theme of the entire season. And... There were a couple of press conferences in, in which he, he did get quite short and quite tetchy about, you know, I'm constantly being asked about the fitness of players and I'm constantly having to explain about the, the injuries and the absences and, and everything else. But the reason for that was because they just never ended. And and more to the point, they were relentless in, in the sense that one player would come back, others would drop out the team. It, it was never remotely close to being a full full strength squad. And there was always some issue to, to discuss and it was you know relevant and it was important to know when is Phillips going to be back? When is Cooper going to be back in the team? 
I actually think, you know, Cooper gets left out of this discussion quite a lot, but I think he's been missed. I think he has as a presence in the team. I, I think he has been missed and, and I think he will help when he returns. But yeah, it towards the end, it was very, very difficult to work out who was coming back when or who was likely to be back. But even now, you know, I've, I've just come out of Marsh's press conference and Cooper is back training, but, you know, it might be the other side of the international break when he's actually available to play. Phillips isn't in full training. People have seen photos of them out on the grass, but there is a difference between being out on the grass and doing work individually or with, with fitness coaches and actually being involved in the, the full sessions day to day. And Phillips as well is still to, to resume full training. They're going to have another look at him on Friday. I think likely to say that it would be the other side of the international break for him too. So it, it, it really isn't as if Bielsa has gone and suddenly everybody who was injured is, is back and ready to go. Just returning to the shape of the game on Saturday down at Leicester, it did feel like they were trying to exploit our right-hand side. They targeted a lot down that side towards Barnes and Dallas was there, obviously, rather than, than Ailing. I've never been convinced by Ailing at, at centre-back. It's a bit hit and miss for me, that. It does feel makeshift and it feels as if the option, same with Bielsa, the, the option you went for when the, when there weren't enough players to allow you just to play Ailing at, at right-back as, as you should have done. One of the disappointments about Saturday was that I felt that if Vardy was called, Jamie Vardy was back, obviously he was playing after his, his hamstring problem and he was a, a bit of a hassle in the first half. He was doing that thing that Vardy always does, which is to hover on the shoulder to basically be right on the last man and to look for balls over the top and, and to let his pace take effect, which it did a, a few times. And I sort of felt that if they could see Vardy off, which they did after an hour, he wasn't going to make it through 90 minutes, then the game would, would be there would be there to be won. And it seemed to me that around that point, the game suddenly became extremely end-to-end and very, very open. And with hindsight, and and you know, this is Captain Hindsight stuff, but I wonder whether, and, and perhaps he wasn't fit enough for this, but I wonder whether Forshaw on earlier than he did come on might have helped just to steady the midfield down again, just to have tightened things up because it seemed as if that little period suddenly played into Leicester's hands. There was far more space to work with. They, they were able to go a bit sort of toe-to-toe with Leeds and, and in the end it was Ian Acho 1-2 with, with Barnes into the box scored from a position very similar to the chance that, that Jack Harrison had much earlier in the game I think in the end they, they got lucky Leicester I don't think they deserved to win that at all and I think they had a lot to to thank Schmeichel for but that is really the, the story of, of Leeds seasons they've Leeds season they've lost a lot of games they deserve to lose but they've also dropped points in games where they should have taken more from them and you said there about injuries. We know they've been absolutely off the charts this year. Tyler Roberts now added to that. Do you think that is where the game completely got away from Leeds on Saturday? Once he came on and then we effectively lost him within a few minutes, 10 men makes it a lot harder than 11 men. I wasn't even sure that him being on the pitch, you know, even as a bit of a decoy or a, a mannequin, given that he couldn't run at all, helped Leeds in, in any way. Marsh said earlier that, because um, clearly Roberts now out for the season, gone for, for surgery on ruptured hamstring tendon which is similar to the the problems that Cooper and and Phillips suffered as well they won't be calling on him now before the season finishes in in May uh, Marsh actually when he came into his press conference today before a question was asked he said you know I I want to talk about this straight away because he was clearly aware that, that there'd been some debate about the injury and why it was that Roberts had been left on the pitch he said that that Roberts had been adamant that he wanted to stay on the pitch um, and, and wanted to try and help, even though he was struggling. I mean, there was one point at which the ball came to him and he was barely able to sort of prod it forward. He just could not, he wasn't mobile, he, he, he couldn't move. It almost felt as if it would have been better to have thought about how to restructure the team with 10 players. 
in a way that would at the very least create you one chance that might um, nick you an equaliser because it didn't feel like a goal was coming and it felt as if with Roberts there and injured it completely disrupted everything and and in the circumstances because it was the last sub and there were no more to use um, it gave Leeds very little chance of, of nicking something towards the end Yeah I'm surprised he stayed on I am surprised he stayed on because uh, there was a moment it was picked up on in the BT Sport commentary as well where they were saying Leeds players just you know you, you glance for a shirt colour don't you out of the corner of your eye when you're playing football and if they're seeing a, a body in white there trying to pass to him and, and he can't do anything with it it becomes a hindrance I suppose the idea is that you you potentially have someone who is on the pitch and therefore can pop up in the box at a corner or something like that and, and stick it in. Um, but it's it, it's quite sort of base level plan and, and it, it is very unlikely to work when he is, when a player is as you know immobile as, as Roberts was. I, I think with hindsight, it would have made much more sense to have taken him off. One of the nice changes, I, I think, from watching the Leicester game was that I didn't have to like watch set pieces and corners through my fingers. It, it, it still felt a bit nervy because it'll take a little while to unlearn what we've been doing previously and to learn new things, I think. But it got to the point, like I remember the Liverpool game, watching them through my fingers and thinking, uh, it's just a matter of time. Van D- ah, there's Van Dijk. There he is. It was like the Harry Maguire one. It was the classic header from such close range that you, you almost can't believe that somebody's been been given that chance, especially given how packed the, the box was and how many people were in there. It was better on Saturday. I don't think one game is a big enough sample size to say that um, it's been resolved, but the structure of marking seemed to work better for them. And, and do, do you know what, what happened? What, what they were actually doing? It, it looked far more zonal to me. And like, was there like one person in particular attacking the ball, like Strout, for example? I, I actually need to go back and have a good proper look at the set pieces, but it felt to me like there was certainly less man-to-man going on in the box. And, and one of the issues with the man-to-man system had been that Leeds were not a big powerful team so it's very difficult to dominate especially minus Cooper who Bielsa always considered to be the best header of the ball or the best defensive um, header of the ball very very difficult to compete with Van Dijk or somebody like Maguire who has you know good good aerial power but you saw it in the in the game as well I don't know if you noticed in open play when Leicester were, were bringing the ball out it seemed to me that it was Rodrigo who was using his arms just to kind of hold the line a bit and and to make sure that Leeds were, were stopping in that um, in that line of four and picking very sort of carefully the moment to go for the ball. It, it was extremely different. And in some of the scenarios where chances were created on the counter or, or in transition, you, you did have situations where the entire front four would be on one particular touchline with nobody on the other end of the pitch. If you have a look at the, the Bamford piece that we've done, um, the the early chance for Dan James um, in particular, it, it is basically four players on one side, um, nothing on the other side of the pitch. And the idea was basically to swamp Tielemans or to look for a mistake, which Tielemans made. And at that point, click your fingers and, and break forward en masse. So it will be different. And, and there, there have definitely been changes. And I can see ways in which it will it will definitely work. But it feels... It, those goals against um, Man United aside and bearing in mind that one of those was a Rodrigo cross that kind of slipped off his, his boot and in behind De Gea it feels like a long time since Leeds properly got it together um, in front of goal and, and really you're going back to the Aston Villa game to find it And with regards to Rafinha a guy who hasn't looked particularly happy in recent weeks did you see an improvement in his performance? It almost felt to me this is only my opinion but it felt to me as if he was perhaps the player that it didn't work for brilliantly on Saturday, he still had moments and he and he had flashes and he was still able to to cause problems. But I wouldn't have said that you saw him go from the kind of subdued player he'd become towards the the back end of, of Bielsa's time to the the sensation that he'd been at, at other stages under Bielsa. Marsh was talking about him today and said that 
Rafinha had come to him a few times since he'd, he'd joined as head coach to talk about doing this at set pieces or to talk about doing that in, in open play and um, to sort of engage with him and, and to chat over how he might play and I guess how he might improve and, and might get his get his form back. I, I, I think we're going to see better of Rafinha in the weeks to come, although part of me feels that like it was inevitable that at some point he would start playing better anyway because he is that good a player. It struck me in the press conference that he said that. It feels like that is probably a change from Bielsa, that you can you can go to the coach and say, I think we should do this, and he will he will kind of take it on board. Well, one of the things that Marsh was talking about today and, and has made quite a big play of is, is that, in his view, he's more, as he put it, sort of interactive than other coaches. And I don't think he's just meaning Bielsa. I think he means that he's, he is accessible to the players and he's happy to, to engage with them and to talk with them and, and to chat things over. It's not a secret that Bielsa didn't have much of a, a personal relationship with them or wasn't particularly close with, with players, didn't often speak to them one-on-one. But again, that was no real hindrance to him for most of the time when, when he was head coach. But Rafinha was one of the players who seemed and, and clearly was, you know, to some extent frustrated um, in, in the back end of Bielsa's time and, and in, in that particularly bad run of games from Man United through to, to Tottenham. So they do need to find something in him. They do need to get him back to the level that, that he was at previously. And perhaps if, if Marsh is a bit more accessible and a bit more easier to, to engage with, that might help. Did you notice any moments on Saturday where the players, because they've got this new found autonomy, they've been given a bit of uh, license to make their own decisions, whereas you contrast that with Bielsa, where it was, as some other coaches would have you believe, you know, prescribed patterns of play. Did you notice any indecision in the players when they were given that chance to express themselves? I didn't think so, really. Uh, one of the things about Bielsa was that even though it was prescribed and it was very, very regimented in the way it was taught, Leeds had this amazing knack under him of being able to to look as if it was all off the cuff and it was all massively instinctive. And that's what made them so difficult to play against. And that's what made them so good, was that it was coached to the nth degree, but they didn't really look like a team who were ever overcoached. They just looked like a, a team who were coached in a way that, that made them exceptional. I would have said that, the, that from time to time on Saturday, they were a little bit tentative with some of the pressing I think probably a little bit unsure exactly of when to go. They'll have known what the triggers were for the press, but there's still it takes time for you to, to have that instinctively where you know straight away, right, bang, we go now. Liverpool are very, very good at that. If you, you watch them, people will know, know all about this. But that comes from years of coaching under Klopp and, and of him doing that religiously and, and of getting them into that mindset. But for a, a first try... After a week, you know, I mean, it would, would have been three, four days of training with Marsh. I, I thought it was good. Yeah, Marsh's method is more to trigger the press slightly earlier, isn't it? I, I get from, I mean, this is based on watching YouTube videos and the like, but it seems to be that the people who break down his method say that you're supposed to go early and aggressively when that ball is on the way to the player, not reacting to him getting it. Yeah, so they were putting huge pressure on Chowdhury, um, particularly at right back. You'll quite often find with Liverpool that they... They certainly don't worry about possession too much, Liverpool. And it's not 100% about field position either when it comes to the press. It's about doing it in the right moments and, and doing it with the players who are particularly exposed. But it seemed obvious on Saturday that it was a case of when the ball goes to the fullbacks, hit them, you know, and, and hit them in the right way and hit them in the right numbers so that you can pinch the ball and suddenly they're in trouble. It was funny watching the Champions League. Did you see any of um, Salzburg's game uh, by Munich? Obviously, they got pump, pumped 7 1, but the one was assisted again by Brendan Aronson. It was, it was indeed, yeah. The, part, the funny thing is that, that part of Salzburg's reason, reasoning for being so resistant to the bids that Leeds were, were putting in for him 
was because they had this game um, against Bayern Munich coming up and it was the first time they'd been into the knockout stages and it was clearly a big deal for the club. But I'd barely flicked on the telly and it was 3-0 to Bayern Munich and it was just that thing of all this excitement, all this hype and then bang, it's gone as it was always always likely to be. But um, it was Aronson with the assist and I'm pretty sure he had the assist in the first game as well. So I suppose individually, not, not too bad. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. As you mentioned in part one there, Phil, you are straight out of uh, Thorpe Arch and you've come to the studio. So let's have a slightly more in-depth debrief of, of the stuff that's been said. Maybe have a look at some of the stuff that's changed over the last week. Um, started pulling on a few threads there. It seems like there's a lot more kind of touchy-feeliness going on at Ellen Road, some of which has been questioned by commentators and people have remarked on the huddle after after the Leicester the game. Huddle. Which Jesse Marsh today described as hilarious and ridiculous. Is the huddle going to become like the bucket, do you think? Mind you, the bucket was very popular, so I think on that basis, no, it didn't seem like a particularly big deal to me. I know there's the inclination to look at it and think of it as very American or the sort of thing that American Americans might do, but it it felt more like something that kind of happened off the cuff at the end of end of his first game, and I, I didn't really see the. I mean, it was interesting that that he did it, but it was getting quite a lot of criticism. I was listening to six or six on the way home, and they were. Um, yeah, they they were kind of going at it in in the way that you you thought they they might do. Marsh was just saying that he's done this before in his career, other places, and that he he just wanted to take the chance immediately after the game with absolutely everybody there to be able to say what he wanted to say. His point was that once you get after the game post match, people drift off, people start to go their separate ways, people need treatment. You know, it's it's kind of busy in a dressing room, but it's it can be a bit disparate as well. So it was just his chance to say, I thought you played very well today. I think this is a good first step. We haven't won the game and we need to win games. But genuinely, you know, after a few days work, I'm I'm impressed. I feel like from the off, he seems to have taken a conscious deci- decision to approach things and, and deal with them head on. I mean, I'm, I was told that it was it was an intentional thing to speak about Ted Lasso at his first press conference because he knew that was going to come up. And he knew he was going to have to deal with it at some point. And he thought he might have a bit of fun and a bit of a joke with it before other people tried to have a joke about it at his expense. And he was saying today as well, it's easier to communicate here because he's an English speaker. You know, he, he does speak German, but when you speak in a foreign language, it's sometimes hard to pick up on the tone of what people are saying or, to, to, or the nuance of certain situations, exactly how you should be handling something, what the right way to, to deal with things is. In English, obviously, he, he finds that much easier to to manage um, and and therefore it, it makes it simpler for him. But he did also say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of aware and it's a bit of an irony that I, that people make more fun or will make more fun of me here because of my native language than they, they would do in Germany. And it does kind of relate back to this thing that Americans in football seems to be a difficult thing for Europeans to cope with. I do wonder if the fuss about the huddle was because he's been in some ways, a bit disappointing so far in terms of the American stuff because he did address Ted Lasso, so people can't talk about that without him saying, yeah, I've already mentioned that. And he's not he's already addressed the fact of mentioning soccer and he's not called them PKs and he's not done... 
he's not done the things that maybe people wanted him to do. So they go, oh, look, he's American. So they've gone, uh, but we've got all this stuff already written. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exa- exactly. It's like we've got all these, we've got loads of like, nice cliched stuff that we wanted to say. And- but you, you described it on our show this week um, when we heard from like, we get, you know, fan feedback and people described it as low hanging fruit. And it is, that yeah. seems to be what so much of the punditry and journalism, yourself accepted, obviously, Phil. Oh, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, you know, surrounding, but surrounding these issues, it's kind of, oh, Bielsa the bucket, he doesn't speak English, he should have learned it. But, you know, all these commonly trotted out tropes. And with with Marsh, it's it's going to be his Americanism that's, that's zeroed in on because it's different to what we're used to, you know. Why is it, I mean, bloody Richard Keyes glowing his face off in the Middle East, <laughs> saying, why is it not Big Sam? And, you know, things, it's just... Just lazy, isn't it? I haven't I haven't read Richard Key's latest missive on this, but I should definitely go visit that for um for fun. It's the same it's, thing he's been saying for about five years. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. new. It's like stonewashed jeans, isn't it? It's just a, a bit of an, an irrelevance. And I think the one thing you have to accept about Marsh is that he's yeah, he is part of the Red Bull stable and he did start in the States, you know, that's where his, his career was founded. And he was at New York Red Bulls for, for a while. But he has coached in Europe for quite a while now, he said himself he wanted to come to Europe precisely because, in his view, Europe grasps football far better than America does. And I don't think that's really an insult. I think that's just a fact. You know, it's, it's far more ingrained in, in European culture than it is over in America. But he, he is a coach who has quite a European history and has been around a long time. And, and I don't see that the Americanisms are, are in any way relevant. I mean, I don't think you see any Americanisms in the actual football or the tactics. And that's because there is no... American style of playing football is there? It's no. just, football is just so football. Like we don't have special teams doing. No, like no, that, it's yeah. not. It, like, it's just it, it just is the game. So yes, he he speaks as Americans do. That's largely because he's American. He is obviously aware that this is going to be to some extent an issue until he finds his feet and until he gets into a run of games, a run of results where people actually start to look at it and say. Well, I start to look at it. You know, this depends on the results, hundred percent. But if the results are good, people start to look at him and say he actually looks like a good coach, and this is potentially a, a good appointment. I think the thing with Ted Lasso is like the the tension in Ted Lasso. It's it's cynicism and negativity versus Ted's positivity and kindness. That's what the show is built around. So you can see the parallels in that you know kind of American fish out of water type stuff. But it is quite lazy. But you've got it there. Ultimately, it's a results business, so it will be used as a stick to beat him with. If we go down, uh, we lose all the games between now and the end of the season. But if we get two wins this week, people will be saying, well, it's just what we needed. But every coach has sticks that people beat them with, don't they? I mean, it was the same for for Bielsa. And you you often kind of felt that there was this lingering hope in some quarters that it would go pretty spectacularly wrong for Bielsa so that you could say, well, I told you so, and it was never that good. And these things were, were always going to go wrong, even though these things had delivered so much over over three previous years. I mean, again, that that's another of the things that um, Marsh has been happy to get into is the subject of Bielsa. He, he said today, you know, my, my impression of the fan base is that they can love Bielsa, but equally be supportive of somebody new, i.e. him, and supportive of the team. And I think that's a fair assessment of the last week. I think that's exactly how it is. There doesn't seem to be any bitterness towards Marsh. Nobody wants him to fail. No, not not at all. Not at all. It's it's just that the 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 Bielsa era was never going to be an easy one to leave behind. And and that's that's kind of kind of where they are. But I thought to it it was it was a better strategy to embrace the love for Bielsa than it was to to be, I guess, defensive about it or to treat it as if, you know, again, 
uh, to treat it as if it was a stick that people were going to beat you with. It doesn't have have to be like that. But I think he's I think he's got the the measure of it right in, as well in pointing out that there are things that need to improve and there are things that need to get better and to change. And the one thing you should never be as a as a head coach is a doormat. Has he been well briefed by the club on the things to address in press conferences? For example, to talk about Bielsa, do you think that's something he's just naturally doing as someone who has, I guess, watched the team? I, I don't know about Bielsa. I'd like to think that he could see himself what was going on here and the, he could see himself how he had to handle that. I think on the basis of him sitting down at the press conference today and before a question had been asked, him saying, I need to, there's someone I need to acknowledge and that's the Tyler Roberts injury, suggests that he's been very aware that that has been that has been out there and, and discussed um, since um, since Roberts was was sent for surgery, and I think the stuff about the huddle, for example, I mean he he must clearly have picked up on the criticism that has been of that um, over the weekend, and some coaches brush that off, some coaches don't particularly care, some coaches prefer to to address these things. Bielsa would generally let a lot go, but there were times when you could tell that he'd been, you know, if if you think about that long press conference Bielsa did after the six two defeat that. Manchester United last season you could tell that he'd spent a lot of time and he said himself I, you know, I spent a whole day thinking about what I got wrong there what people have been criticising me for because I wanted to come in here and to, to answer it all so you know Marsh has, has clearly picked up on that um, he's, he's thought about it a bit he'll have thought that it or as he said he, he thought it was faintly ridiculous that people made such a big deal about it so evidently he, he is aware of what's going on around him I think one of the key themes that's emerged over the week that I've found interesting is the idea of reducing stress and maybe it points to something that had started to become an issue under Bielsa that the stress levels had increased because it's such hard work and the results weren't coming. Whereas maybe this this positivity, this arm around all the players, this togetherness is all rooted in just making them feel a bit better about the situation. It's one way to go at it and you do tend to find that that is exactly what managers do when they come into a club, particularly pre-season and particularly if it, sorry, mid-season and particularly if it is on the basis of results that have not been not been going well. I mean, one of the things I loved about Bielsa when he first came in back in that summer was that it wasn't a softly, softly approach at all. It was a case of this is what we're doing. I need you to go with it and I expect you to go with it and, and everybody did. But yeah, you can you can tell that Marsh is, is trying hard just to... Just, I guess, to to sort of to massage the squad in a way that picks them up a little bit and and raises their confidence. It's it's the right way to go, I think. But it's it's all words, isn't it? And it's all you know that side of it is absolutely fine. But what it has to do is lead to to results, and they are very much getting to crunch time on that front now. How is it in the room for journalists? Because obviously, I, I know you've you've not been in Thorpe Archer an awful lot of the last couple of years, but. With Bielsa, there was such an intensity and a seriousness to press conferences. Does it feel different? Do you? Feel, I guess you feel less likely to get your head bitten off for asking <laughs> about someone being injured. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think, again, with a new manager, you don't reach the getting your head bitten off stage after a couple of weeks. That Gary tends Monk. to come much further down the line. Yeah, no, that, that went pretty quickly. And um, it has to be said with people like Hockaday as well, you, were, you kind of felt like you were into that far earlier than... You should be with the with the average manager. The atmosphere of being in Thorpe Arch is definitely better to doing it on Zoom. Um, and even with Bielsa, you could have from time to time a little bit of fun with him, you know. And and it was easier to engage. It was easier for it to feel personal because you were um, you were kind of sat there right in front of them. And I think it probably will help Marsh to project his message and to let people know how he feels and and how he thinks that that it is in the room and and it's a bit more. Um, up close and, and a bit more up front 
but it's been it's been a long time coming. I mean, it was fully two years without an in-person press conference with Bielsa, which must have been strange for him as well as us. And then you've got the interpreter to factor in as well, which kind of just disjoints it that little bit much more. It's like doing a telephone call through a third party, I guess. And a tough job that. I mean, Andres, um, who was Bielsa's translator latterly, has left the club um, and is going, but he was a lovely guy and he did, he did a really good job of that. It's a tough, tough gig, which um, I don't think many people people envied, but he coped with it really well. And it's something like 18 people have gone, haven't they, with Bielsa? It's not just him. Well, the, the backroom team was massive. I mean, the, the one of the comparisons that was made when they appointed him was the fact that when Heckenbottom came in from Barnsley, he asked for, I think, two people to join the staff. When, when Bielsa came in, he asked at the outset for eight. You know, it was a completely different um, regime and, and a totally different approach. And Bielsa's team tended to get bigger and bigger. He would, there would be more secretarial staff who'd come in. There would be more analytical staff because the workload never got smaller. It always increased. And, you know, he, he always wanted to do more and, and wanted to, to push himself more. So, yeah, needless to say that there have been a lot of exits, him included. I've got an image of one of his staff members still in a cupboard in Thorpe Arch looking through videos. He's going to emerge in a, in a week's <laughs> and, time to discover the rest yeah. of them have gone. Like the, like that famous, uh, was it the, the Japanese <laughs> soldier who was in the, the woods until like the, the mid-1970s or something <laughs> like that? Because nobody had told him told him that it was that it was over, but it fascinates me. Really. I mean, I think the the plan is for Bielsa to to be back in Argentina by the end of this week. Um, but it fascinates me to know what it will be like for some of them now, because the the intensity of it never drops. You know, it's really really hard work and it's constant as well. And then suddenly that it's it's all gone, and yeah. and you have a lot of I presume fairly empty days ahead of you, which must be. A Quite a shock to the system. I was going to say, anybody who's done like a high-stress job for any sustained period of time, if when you finish that job, it does take time to decompress and unwind, doesn't it? You can't just switch it off. No, and, and also there'll be the disappointment of losing the job on top of that and the fact that, that this wasn't how anybody wanted it to end, least of all Bielsa. But they've been in this situation before. The, a lot of staff there who were with him at Lille and were with him at Marseille um, and also you know, back to back to Bilbao. So... They are used to this scenario where it, it finishes, they go back to Argentina and then they wait for the next call. I thought um, Marsh's comments, just to return to him now again, um, Jack Harrison were interesting today. Singled him out in particular. Um, and, it, and it felt like a, a little bit of a public challenge for him to stop being so nice, basically, and maybe up his aggression levels. Do you think aggression levels have been perhaps a little bit lower than they could be? Or do they just want to raise them for the new approach? I want him to be a son of a bitch or more of a son of a bitch on the pitch. Um, and it even rhymes. Marsh said, the first thing I would say about Harrison is that he is actually an example of how players improved under Bielsa. I mean, the one thing you could not say about Harrison is that he didn't, he wasn't completely transformed as a footballer in that period. He was a massive, massive part of it. And and he became a Premier League player, having come in as a, a loanee from Manchester City who hadn't really been able to get a game at Middlesbrough when he'd been there. And the previous season. So we're not in any way, I don't think, talking about somebody who's underperformed over the course of, you know, as a rule, over the course of four years. But he is a very nice guy, Harrison. And I don't say that as an insult at all. You know, he just is a nice, nice lad. Um, but clearly Marsh is looking at him and thinking a bit more devilment in you, a bit more aggression and, and you could go up the scale further. Which is right, because Harrison's still at a pretty early stage of his career and, and plenty of time ahead of him. And he's challenged him to be more decisive as well, which is perhaps something you could level as a fault at some of this squad sometimes. I thought he played well on Saturday. And looking back at the highlights, there was a lot of good play from him in what was would have been a fairly unfamiliar system. You know, him and Rafinha tucking in off the wings. 
my impression of Harrison or the way I think about Harrison throughout the, the Bielsa era is of a player hugging the left side. You know, you, you'd find on the right, particularly early on, you had Hernandez who was a bit of, for want of a better phrase, a bit of a false seven in that he was a right winger, but he roamed all over the place and just pulled pulled the strings. Whereas on the other, other side of the pitch, Harrison just played on the flank and on the touchline constantly. Okay, sometimes players overlapping him um, or underlapping him or, or whatever else, but constantly looking for the gaps and, and, the, and ways to create pressure from his side of, of the pitch. So I think... Marsh was saying that he would like Harrison and Rafinha to be, as he put it, slightly more interior players, so not just players who are going to play out wide. But I think with Harrison, there probably is scope there for more assists and, and definitely more goals as well. Because it was one of the hallmarks of a Bielsa side, as you just said there, Phil, like, is to stretch the pitch and make it really, really big to play everybody very, very wide, like huge gaps between players who are in theory and partnerships. Um, and you could argue that was maybe part of our undoing against the uh, the better sides. but. Marsh likes to have, I think, I mean, I don't know what the language is all about, but they call them the half spaces, don't they? Mm, Between the centre of the pitch and the wing is the half space. Um, And he likes to play his football in there. Yeah, I mean, it's always been part of the Guardiola model, the half space and the idea that you keep players in those zones as much as you can and and preferably at all times. And and the idea as well being that if you switch play between them, it, it can cause a lot of problems for the opposition. It'll take a good few weeks to to know for sure how this is settling in and, and to know whether the, the kind of positive steps in the progress at Leicester is indicative of what's coming or whether actually it's going to be far more difficult to to embed this quickly um, than, than Marsh realises. And he's in it for the long term as well. If we go, presumably he stays if we go down. Well, I mean, if, if Leeds were to go down, there'll be so many questions about what happens next that I think all bets are off really I don't know whether that applies to him maybe he sees himself here regardless he certainly said last week that the club had said to him if we were in the championship or the Premier League would you manage, manage us in either he said yes you know and put his money where his mouth was by signing that contract that runs to 2025 but without wanting to get into this discussion particularly at the moment um, there'll be an awful lot to sort out if they do drop down which isn't going to happen Michael before you even say it <laughs> Well, it still might. It, it would be a hard sell, though, to say we're going to stick with this guy who has failed to keep us up from a, a position where we weren't actually in the relegation zone as well. It, it, I think it would be, we'd need to see signs of progress in some way. I think we'd have to go down on about 36 points somehow for it for it to be a palatable thing to keep him in the championship. I mean, the, the, the flip side to that is to say that it would be pinning a hell of a lot of blame to him to say you, you basically have to carry the can for this, hopefully, it's not not going to come to this um, ultimately. But I think, as I say, when you go into a summer after um, being relegated, there's an awful lot that needs to be sorted out. You're just back into the terms of managers being disposable, aren't you? Is the thing you're into the the same mindset as we used to be, where we'd sack a manager and you go, "Well, so what?" Like, did Darko Milinic deserve sacking? Probably not. Did he deserve to keep his job? Probably not. Did he deserve to get it in the first place? Yeah. Probably not. Was it, it was, was it met with a lot of, a lot of apathy? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. No, no, no one really cared, did they, for so long about managers. It's it's a strange how it's turned around. That's why this has to go in stages, though. The, the, the stages have to be, first of all, this back end of the season, nothing else matters beyond getting the results together. And then once you get into the summer, assuming you've stayed up and, and you're, you, you know, you've got the chance to go at the Premier League again, then you have to be very honest about what's gone wrong, very honest about what has to change, and you have to have a concerted plan to make sure the next season is better. Let's look ahead now. Then we've got some uh, big, big games coming up this week, Phil. It is do or die time. Would you agree that what happens over the course of these next two games defines the season? 
It feels like there is a hell of a lot invested in these two games. Yes, I would agree with that. I was thinking on on the way here that the the rearranged games, to some extent, haven't really helped Leeds. I don't think it helped Bielsa to have Liverpool dropped in between Manchester United at home and Spurs at home. Liverpool was a game which Leeds realistically were always going to lose on Boxing Day before it was postponed because they were so short of players at that point. It got to ridiculous levels of, of who was on the bench, but they were no more likely to to take anything from it. And because of the way things had gone defensively, it became a game in which the scoreline had the, the potential to be fairly embarrassing. And, and in the end, it, it was, and it kind of wasn't the game that, that Bielsa needed to fall in that week. I also look at this Villa game and wonder whether it might have suited Marsh and Leeds better to have had a clear run to Norwich as opposed to having Villa dropped in before it. Having said that, it is, as as well as Villa played last weekend and as well as Villa can play, it is definitely, definitely an opportunity for six points this and, and a quick six points as well. And that would change everything massively. It feels like a lot of the potential success of this game is locked into dealing with Coutinho and that midfield. And he said in the press conference today, there is a plan to deal with Coutinho. Uh, we need to be aggressive to counter him. Yes, he said it in a way, um, or described it um, as a kind of team strategy as opposed to a one-on-one man-marking approach. And even though he has broken away from man-marking, it's not to say that in this sort of game, you might not decide that, look, I want four shot. Basically down the back of Coutinho's shots for the entire game, or for as long as he can he can cope, because that is one way to go with it. But I think in his when when I asked him that question, he basically said, "Yes, you know, we we've got to deal with this guy. We've got to be aggressive with him. We've got to be on top of him." And they do. I mean, that was one of the things that changed the game at Villa Park. Was after a really good start from Leeds, suddenly Coutinho was getting on the ball in places where he could pick passes, really dangerous passes. He was turning players like he turned Luke Ayling on the halfway line to to open open things up and he was starting to draw attention in a way which was allowing somebody like Jacob Ramsey to just drive coaching horses through you know the, the either side of of Leeds defence um so yeah he I wasn't sure when Coutinho joined how exactly that one was going to go I thought he would make an, an impact but it was a question of whether he was going to be worth the money the Villa were paying for that loan but he's looking extremely good and he could be very influential tomorrow it's funny isn't it how in many ways that Villa away game showed us the very best and worst of the Bielsa system in that we were so aggressive on the front foot and we we scored three times. And yet with that goal that you described, just by pulling Luke Ayling out of position, left that massive gap in behind him. And you would just assume that we're not going to do anything near the same sort of thing um, at Ellen Road on Thursday. You'd hope not. I don't actually think Villa played particularly well that night, but it, it was... I think that was a good example of what was starting to cause the the concern and what was starting to to worry you was that it was 1-0 going on 2-0 when Dan James hit the crossbar and then suddenly it was 3-1 down and it felt as if one goal went in and others were bound to follow and there was nothing anybody could do about it and it and it wouldn't wouldn't dry up and and James scoring before half time was I think absolutely critical in making sure that that game wasn't lost because 3-1 at half time would have been a much easier scoreline for Gerard to work with, I think, than than three two. But there was enough in that, I think, for Leeds to feel like they can beat Villa. I really, really do think that. And Villa seemed to me to be very sort of up and down. The, their away record is kind of weird. They've won games away from home, but they've lost eight and they haven't drawn any. You know, it seems to be kind of all or nothing for them. They are now, you know, far enough clear that they're they're not going to not going to go down. So the pressure's off to to a degree in the way that it isn't off Leeds. But both this and Norwich, I mean, you you have to 
you've got to fancy your chance in, in these games because these are the games where you have to deliver. And I think if we don't beat Norwich, we probably deserve to be in trouble, to be perfectly honest, because they are, by a distance, the weakest side in the division. Well, I think if if they don't take much from Villa and they don't beat Norwich, then they're, the squad are going to be in trouble. I mean, no two two ways about it. There are other teams around them who are in big trouble as well, Everton being one of them. You know, it's quite difficult to call at the moment. But as was the case with Bielsa, I honestly don't think it, it will take many results to turn this for the better for Leeds. I, I really feel like it does just need one concerted push to bring this under control again, but it's it's got to happen. We, we just need like a seven points from nine type run, don't we? Something exactly. like that, and that then yeah. basically puts the season to bed. It, it could it, all feel fine by Sunday night, couldn't it? That's the thing. If it goes if it goes well, we'll have a massive points gap over the bottom three. We'll have another couple of teams probably in between us and in between us and the relegation places. And you can just have you heard yourself? I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it's <laughs> it's possible though for it to turn that quickly, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. And it has been all season. That's been the frustration. It feels like yeah. getting to this point has been such a long, drawn-out process. Newcastle have shown in recent weeks, they've been terrible for the majority of the season, but then they've had a good month and they're absolutely not in trouble anymore. You, yeah. would, ha- you would have to say it'll take something remarkable now for them to be bit to go down. And so. annoyingly, it feels like the hi- entire season hinged on Ellen Road when we should have absolutely had them out of sight and didn't. Hinged on Ellen Road um, in the way that I actually think in the end, it probably for, for Bielsa, it probably hinged on that game um, to a large degree as well. But I, I would say that Newcastle are also benefiting from the transfer window. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, it's, it's easy if you chuck another 150 million quid. It's for it, wimps, it? is the January transfer window, <laughs> as we all know. So yeah, an interesting few days coming up. How do you think they're going to cope with the pressure? Because it seems like Jesse Marsh has been trying to reduce pressure. Maybe it's with this in mind. With uh, it's going to be a pressure cooker situation right up until the end of the season, unless they get that you know concerted run of form. Atmosphere will be interesting because it's the first game post Bielsa. Um, it's Marsh's first home game. Interesting to see how people respond to him. I, I think they'll be extremely supportive, actually. And I think the crowd, more than anybody, realised realise the scenario here and, and realised the pressure that is on. And I still don't think at any stage this season the crowd have exacerbated the pressure at all. I think quite the opposite. I mean, the, there were there were little points in the game against Spurs where you felt as if it was about to go and you felt as if it was about to turn but then it still didn't and you know it was still it wasn't as if people there were boos at half time and you know you could you could feel the general vibe at full time as well and, and a lot of people walking past the press box were kind of saying to us just not sure about this you know I just, just worried you know I just don't know don't know where this is going particularly but the crowd haven't made it more difficult quite quite the opposite so I do feel like this is there to be won. I honestly do. And I think if a lot of what went on at Leicester can be replicated against Villa, then it will give them the same chance. Marsh talked about a positive start, didn't he? That's one of the things. Yeah. And it's, you know, when we've been going back and doing all the 30-year shows, looking back at things 30 years ago, Howard Wilkinson's side famously came out of the blocks for 20 minutes and kind of had so many games won in that 20 minutes that it feels like that's what we need. We need a response. So I think the crowd will, will be nice to him. You'll also get a Marcelo Bielsa song. I think we're under the lights. That always makes things better at Ellen Road. And it's not like a Sunday lunchtime, is it? Um, at two o'clock when you're thinking this is not proper football time. So I think all that should contribute to what, to it. But most of all, a good start. Something for the crowd to, to lift the players with. And I think the crowd will lift the players anyway, but I think it'll be exponential. If we have a good start, the crowd will get louder, the players will respond. Also, there's Forshaw there to call on um, this time. Urenti um, is, is, yeah. is also back. Although Urenti's form definitely, definitely needs to pick up. Um, I, I thought he really struggled um, in, in Bielsa's last few games. But for, not the same with Forshaw. Forshaw has been very, very good, I feel. 
but also there will be Bamford on the bench and there will be Bamford on the bench with the absolute intention of playing him at some point. Mars was saying about him at Leicester that it was almost like risk versus reward and could they end up regretting putting him on for the sake of the 11 games that left? Was it the right thing to do to gamble? And clearly they, they didn't think that it was, but he, he wasn't making much of a secret today that um, these next two games will, will be there for Bamford. As I say, I, I don't think he's likely to start either of them but he should be fit enough to play a, a decent part. Yeah, what, 45 at best, maybe half an hour, something like that? I, I would have thought half an hour would be a good shout, yeah. You said in a weird way, Michael, you were looking forward to these games. Like, as somebody who's so thoroughly negative in his in his disposition, um, but you said like earlier in the week on our show, there's kind of something about this, isn't I, there? I think I did also say I want them out of the way, yeah. so, I can, so I can start. Um, <laughs> I can start. I, I think it's because the picture will be so much clearer after this week. Uncertainty is not... It's not a nice feeling, is it? And mm. I feel like after after this week, we'll we'll have more of a handle on where we are. If we go, if we're ending the week on zero points, I, I'm just willing to accept my fate. It's mm. it's fine. We're we're down, and and it's all right. I feel weirdly we've, okay. We've been down there before, yeah. But equally, I think I don't actually expect zero points. I think we will get something from this week, and and hopefully, even if we don't get all six points, I'm hoping for at least four points, and just to see a bit of fighting us and a bit more structure, and I suppose showing that we're we're able to get something from every game this season. I feel weirdly okay about the prospect of relegation because A, I've experienced it before. I mean, it'd be awful. It would be awful. But Premier League's fairly hideous, isn't it? Particularly when you're just floating around at this level. We were talking about this via text, weren't we, Phil? Just but the championship. No, no, I mean, look, it's it's uh, that's the caveat I did, here. I did send uh, Moylan some of last night's championship fixtures back as a sort of yeah, just tennis like, ball over the net yeah. to which you said pretty bleak or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, it is really bleak and it's and the Premier League is better than the alternative. But I found by being in the Premier League, there's not a lot to love about it, is there? There was last year though. It's just because we're not winning any games. But even then, all that stuff, you know, you can... It'd have been great fun last year if we'd, if we'd been in the ground. We'd have been having such a good time with it. I'm, it's not, just I'm, not, the, I'm not enjoying it because we're not winning. We've won five games this year. That's the problem That's with this season. Right. The, Premier League, the Premier League would be fine. If we were beating Man City again this year, We'd be having the time of our lives at mm. games, but we're not. And so two wins this week will start to make it feel a bit better again. It'll, it'll be interesting to see the bearing that the, the Villa game has on the Norwich game. Like if, if we win on Thursday, I think it'll be really good on Sunday because people will say that we've got something now to cling on to. If it all goes wrong on Thursday, the tension against Norwich is going to be fairly hideous. I think it will definitely have a bearing on Sunday. Because Villa are, have good players and can be a good team and, and absolutely smashed Southampton last weekend, it maybe will be easier to be a bit philosophical if it doesn't quite go to plan, but it will definitely put pressure on the Norwich game. I think the Norwich game is the one where there is absolutely nowhere to hide um, mm. and we're explaining a poor result on that night, it barring something completely weird going on, will be nigh on impossible except to say we needed to win that, we haven't, and we are up against it. I was going to say a huddle on the pitch would become toxic within a matter of half a second, wouldn't it, if we uh, have it all go wrong this week and lose to Norwich? Maybe it's destined to become like the Celtic huddle, who knows, in which they've done it full-time for, for years and Not years. Not a fan? Um, surprisingly enough, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, but then again, that's them, not Leeds. But yeah... I, well, I I don't think you would post match huddle after a defeat to Norwich, would you? You would um, you go with your, your tail between your legs. But the hope has to be that they turn up against Villa and they play as they did against Leicester, because I do think that will give them a serious chance of winning the game. And if they do beat Villa, then it should be absolutely all guns firing for Norwich. Who let's not try and pretend they're a great side. 
In um, in his presser today, Marsh addressed the idea of rotation as well, didn't he? He has a, re- a reputation for player rotation to keep his players hungry. So do you think we'll see much rotating? I mean, do we have the scope to do it with the squad? Well, I was just going to say, I, th- I think you probably need a slightly bigger squad than this to rotate. If everybody was back fit, then there's scope to do it. You know, you could sort of balance Forshaw and Phillips and Clake and, and others. You know, you'd have ways of, of mixing it up. Um, if you've got Bamford back, then... Clearly, you don't have to just flog James or Rafinha or, or Harrison for as far as they can go. So, yes, if, if everybody was available, you can definitely rotate. But I think for a coach who wants to rotate the squad quite religiously, you would need more players than this. And what of Bamford then? So if we get, let's say, 45, 30 minutes out of him, whatever it might be, against Villa, do we look at maybe starting him on Sunday, trying to get an hour out of him in the way that Leicester did with Vardy or... Is that too soon? Unless I read this wrong, it didn't sound to me like Marsh was expecting him to start either game. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, whatever he does on Thursday, however however many many minutes he gets, it's his first game since December. And bear in mind, prior to that, he hadn't played at all for the first team since, um, since September. It's a long stretch without a game. So his recovery period between Villa and Norwich will be pretty crucial. Um, and I don't think it would make sense from a physical point of view. This is only me me surmising but makes sense to then start him on, on the Sunday Wolves the following week might be more of a target and the good thing is that if Leeds can get a decent number of points out of these games coming up these three games the international break comes after that and suddenly you're looking at Bamford having time to, to work on his fitness Phillips and Cooper in the wings things hopefully looking better and if Bamford does come on and score he needs to do a very very low key celebration just stand still. Like maybe a put- candle backflip or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Rob Price in the stands. Yeah, going, no, going, what are you no, doing? stop it. Stop it. Yeah, just stand still and bow to the south stand. That'll do. Are, are you in a perverse way looking forward to this, Phil, this uh, next few days? You know you're I, alive. I, you know you're going to be alive, don't you, in Ellen Road over the next few days? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I feel I feel anxious about it. I do feel apprehensive about these games. It was The, the thing about the decision to replace Bielsa was that for all that you could see the rationale behind it and I know a lot of people disagreed with it but I think there were reasons why you you could argue the toss that it was kind of coming or or the club felt like they had to do it I never felt it was a sure thing at all that somebody else was going to be able to to get this season on the leash and and to sort it out but I'm encouraged by Leicester Um, I, I did think it was a good performance I am anxious about the next two games but sometimes when you look back on it these are the periods that you do absolutely love because it works out and you think you need a bit of you need a bit of jeopardy in your life. Mm. I mean, if you're anxious, it's our job to be anxious about this, not yours. Well, yeah, but it, it's not. It's never. I, I spent a long time writing about Leeds either looking like they might be relegated or actually getting relegated, and then trying to recover from relegation and and all the implications and that that come with it. Some of them really long term, and some of them really really difficult to shake off. And the process of the last four years three years particularly under Bielsa was so spectacular and worked so well that it would be such a massive waste to see it all fall away and it would leave you kind of reflecting on it with some some pretty deep deep sadness I think that they are in a position to finish it off um, and to get themselves out of trouble and and they they do have the players to do that and it it would it would be it would be incredibly depressing to see this end the way that, that nobody wants it to end but Deep down, I've always felt that it, it wouldn't go that way. You can tell the truth, Phil. You just don't you just don't want to go back to Kenilworth Road now you've been to Spurs. No, as excited as Dan is about that prospect, I'm, uh, I'm going to give it a swell. <laughs> I suspect <laughs> Angus Kinnear would like it more than us. But, uh, yeah, no, I think actually in that exchange of messages we had about this, talking about the, the jeopardy of going down, uh, and obviously we know about the, the financial jeopardy, 
But that's become all consuming, hasn't it? Like the entire EFL is just a big financial money pit. It's a mess and they haven't got the governance in order. I dare say the Premier League hasn't got its governance fully in order either, but it's certainly is better, isn't it? And what you said to me earlier, I found really interesting. It's that everything is always underpinned. Like, So you can't really go in and just enjoy an individual game. Like Everything is underpinned by the bigger picture. You can't just enjoy football for football's sake anymore. And I think that's what we'd come to actually do under Bielsa. Mm. When there was no jeopardy attached to it, we could actually say, oh, this is just nice. This is nice football to watch, even when it goes wrong. Like, we can see what we're trying to achieve. There was jeopardy, though, for all but about six months of Bielsa. I, I, think, I think retrospectively, we do look back and go, oh, it was such, it was so, so great to just enjoy football. I was just terrified through yeah. most of it, to be perfectly honest. There were games where I'd sit through and I'd be thinking, they're going to score. They're going to score. We've had all these chances and they're going to score. No, completely. I mean, you're looking you look, back you, on it like a, a past relationship, aren't you, through exactly. roasting the spectacle? And, and that's the way, that's what you do with football. You look back, out, back on the the Bristol Rovers game and you say, what a brilliant day it was. It was awful. It was awful for about an hour of that game, but obviously what came after justified it. And it, the same with Bielsa. There was, um, there was an awful lot of tension and leaving games feeling frustrated during that era as well. But obviously you do look back on it as a whole as being brilliant. Last season was a bit like popping the cork out of a champagne bottle and everybody being able to sit back and for the first time in God knows how long at Leeds, sit back and, and feel like there was no threat coming from anywhere. The season was so in hand last year that by December, I, I remember coming away from the 5-0 win at West Brom thinking, pretty much done here in terms of staying up. You know, it's not as if they can now afford to go on a run of 19 games without a win, but it's not going to happen and, and they'll they'll be absolutely fine. And, and I remember, you know, there was very little activity in the uh, January window last season. I remember somebody tweeting me and saying, you know, this could really cost us during the running. And I was thinking... If Leeds don't win another game now, the chances are they're probably safe anyway. It kind of took everybody from the permanent state of fear and anxiety, which had become Leeds United. You know, every season, it was like waiting for something to go wrong or, or you know, things on the edge or, or things at stake that you were always, always thinking about. And then there was just none of that. It was mm. just a sort of serene Premier League season that seemed to go but, so smoothly. But you then, believe it. But then, Phil, people will look at this season and say, I told you we were right to be anxious because that one was the anomaly. That season was the anomaly. This is what it's like to be a Leeds fan. But every single club is always at risk of things going south, aren't they? Or turning for the worse. It's that is just that is just football. Look, um, at, look at Everton at the start of the year. Start of the season, you think they've no chance of going down, have they? They'll be seventh, eighth, ninth, absolutely fine. But then, you know, I mean, actually, there's there's a degree of truth in it because um, have you seen one of the the Liverpool FSGs? That that's their owners, isn't it? Uh, the Fenway Sports Group. Uh, one of the anti-FSG bodies over there has uh, expressed its discontent because they are fearful of what will happen after Klopp leaves, if he leaves in 2024. They're saying, well, all this success was down to him and actually FSG's model is bad. It's like, look at all the trophies that you're winning. Just enjoy the here and now. They're getting upset over a future they've imagined after Klopp that they don't know. It hasn't happened yet. And you just wonder, does anybody really properly enjoy this? Is somebody always unhappy with something? I guess they're just looking across to Man United, aren't they, and seeing what happened post-Ferguson with American owners and maybe seeing some parallels there that a, a good manager keeps you above a certain level. But, I mean, Liverpool, to me, they don't look like a squad or a team that is going to fade instantly at any point. But but then again, it's like what's happening at Man United, isn't it? Like, they are hovering around, so let's say, fourth, fifth. And the whole reason why they're upset is because they're not as good as they used to be. It's entitlement. And the the idea that we always want it to be good. We we can never have it 
be slightly less than perfect. We want it perfect all the time. And when you're not, we're going to protest. And there are now at least three or four teams who think they deserve to win the league every season. Yeah. And, and also, who who do you blame? You know, is blame collective? Should blame be singled out individually? Can people be kind of broad enough to think about the fact that it probably isn't down to one person or a couple of people, it's probably a, a wider remit? Is there actually nobody to blame? And is it just the run of things to players not play as well as they did previously the, the systems just kind of deteriorate is that you know is that nature in football in action and I think it is true with Bielsa that he did kind of teach everybody to enjoy what was in front of you and to, to enjoy the ball on the pitch and there is so much now around football that is about ownership and finance and all the stuff that if people had spoken to you about that as a six-year-old you'd have said I'm not interested in this in the slightest, mate. I'll, you know, I'll just go buy a PlayStation. Not that they existed. What, what existed back <laughs> back when we were six? I was going to say Nintendos, but not not even them. No. Um, whatever it was, but that's like there's nothing romantic in that, and it does sometimes become all-consuming to the extent that you forget that the point of, of being there and the point of going and and of of loving it is the the football. Well, let's hope we get some football to love this weekend. What are you going for then? You sort of, you're, you've been hovering around sort of three points, Michael. Yeah, just because I think that'll be the cruelest result. Three points. <laughs> it just keeps us in that limbo of state of flux. I can no yeah. longer. I can no longer accept we're staying up. I can't accept we're going down. We just have to wait and see for another few weeks. <laughs> so probably, probably th- we'll probably beat Villa then lose to Norwich. Um, I've gone for six points because well, why not? <laughs> I, I'm going four or six. I can easily see Villa getting something from the game at Ellen Road because I can see it being very open and very very even. But I think it will probably be there to be won in the way that Leicester was for Leeds. And I do believe deep down that Leeds will prove themselves to be better than Norwich as well. Yeah, I mean, my prediction that we'll beat Norwich is based on the fact that we can't do anything but that. That's the only alternative that, that works right now. So I'm going well, for it. I, I think if you're <laughs> predicting a Norwich win on Sunday, then it then the game's <laughs> up really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I mean, if you're listing your games, easiest to most difficult across the season, Norwich at home is top of the list, isn't it? So let's be honest about it. Even it's if, the, even, if you, even if you wouldn't like to admit it, it you, that's it, how you look at it. There's no way. There's no two ways about it. It is. It is the easiest game of the season. Well, and we need to win it. Fingers crossed. It's a happy show next week. That's all I can say. If you want to um, say hi to us, we're at the Phil Hayes Show on Twitter and theathletic.com forward slash Leeds Pod. Pound a month for six months for the Athletic. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hayes Show.